I'm amazed that when we, as believers in Christ, when we yield ourselves to the Lord, the first place that that has to begin is by yielding our time to His Word. We can never get so far removed, ever, in any stretch of degree, where we feel like we can be suitable Christians and have distance between us and the Word of God. We have to, we have to hold what He has said high because it is the complete authority for why we exist. Jesus comes alive in these words. This book is alive. The Word is alive. And when you yield yourself to it, it will transform you. One of the questions that was asked in Sunday school today was, well, I can't remember exactly the question, but it was something to the effect of, uh, have you had events in your life that perhaps has caused you to think of things differently? So when Jesus comes into your life, you begin to think differently. You become a new person. The old you is gone. The new you has come. It didn't matter how awful or rotten you were before. Now the Prince of Peace is inside of you. That very Godhead him itself is inside of you. And that transformation is happening. Right? And so the evidences of it then will be manifest in your, in your conversation. About how you, that's, how you, that's King James language for how you live. Right? Uh, in your words... Your speech, uh, in the things that you condone, your worldview, even how you view the world, the things that you let pass into your soul. And what informs all of that, the, the central thing on this earth while we're here in these bodies of ours, is the Scripture. It is the Word of God. You you must have a desire for the Word of God. And I think that's one of the great evidences of Scripture is there should at least be a seed of desire for the Scripture to know who God is. But I will say this, the more you yield yourself to Him in the Word, to God in the Word, you're going to grow. And he's going to change the way you think about things and the way, you, the way you see things. And you will find that you indeed are part of a peculiar people called the church. All of you, it amazes me today as I look out over your faces, there you were. It's 3 a.m. Except for a few weirdos like over here, you know you're in bed. And, uh, and you're sleeping. And you probably don't look so attractive doing so. And, uh, and you're dreaming, or you could be flopping like a tuna like I do, but you're still trying to sleep. And, uh, and you get up, you've had, a, you've had a week, you know, you've just had a heck of a week. And you get up, and you turn your legs over the bed, and here we go again. And you get yourself together, you get your go-go juice in you, you have some time of prayer and Bible study, and if you don't, you should, just because it's sunny doesn't mean it stops. Okay, you got to prep the engine before you get here. And, and you get up and you say, God, here we go. I want to meet you there. 
I'm going to meet with the body there. But you come, you, you get all your, so for those of you with young families, you get your children around and the rodeo of it that ensues. And you come here to church. In our culture today, they would think that is the most ridiculous form of stress. Why would you want to have it? Because you're a peculiar people. You're a peculiar people. You have something inside of you that wants communion, fellowship, relationship with God, your maker, your creator. This is, this is a time when the creature draws near the creator. This is a time when all of the called out from the world unto Christ comes together and sings together how deep the Father's love for us. This is a time when we gather together underneath the authority, meet myself included, believe me, to hear the instruction and hear the word of the Lord talk to us. It's a time of reverence. So with that being said, I want to turn then to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 4, and I'm going to read through verse 13. I'm going to do something a little different today. I'm not saying that I'm starting a tradition. I would hate to do that because I'm pretty inconsistent because I'm so forgetful. But I would like for us all to stand in honor of God and in honor of the Word of God. Okay? When this is being read, this is God speaking today, right now. It's our job to listen. So here's what the Word of the Lord says in 1 John 5, beginning in verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, period. It's wonderful. It's a declarative statement of victory. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Okay? Amen. And then, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And the rhetorical answer is yes, absolutely. And verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. That is stuff we need to pay attention to. We're going to talk about. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, this is important. The witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which He has testified to His Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in Himself. He who does not believe God has made Him a liar. Because He has not believed the testimony that God has given of His Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And the life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Let's pray. Almighty God and Creator, we are creatures. We are creatures who are very fragile. 
And we have a self-destructive nature which came through the first Adam. And it spread to us all. God, how we need rescued. And then, Lord, once we're rescued, how we need sustained. We cannot live without you, not even for a moment. So we pray today that you would take your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us all things concerning the Son through it. And that you would glorify the Father. That you would change us. And that we would encounter you in it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I love how verse 4 starts out. Whatever, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. I'm going to tell you something. As I've learned walking in the faith and making many mistakes. I've been a Christian for 38 years now. That you are not, if you're in Christ, if the Holy Spirit of God has sealed you unto Himself until the day of redemption, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 and 2, you are an overcomer. Romans tells you that you are to reckon yourself dead to sin, but alive to Christ. Reckon is an is an accounting term which means uh, imputed to you you are dead christ's righteousness has been imputed to you so you need to just count on the fact that you are dead to the captivity of the bondage of your will you've been set free and if there's ever been a time in when in your life when you've had this thing called free will it's when christ sets you free So you're not in any kind of sin at all. That God does not give you the ability and the occasion to walk away from. You're not bound by it. You cannot say, this is a sin I can't overcome. That's a lie from hell. You can't say it. You are an overcomer because God in Christ declared you to be so. So if you're in a sin today, that you claim you can't break, just know this. You're the one that's choosing to stay in it. This is your free will operating all right, and it's telling you, oh, you need it. But meanwhile, there's someone in you greater who is faithful to the covenant of redemption that we have been beneficiaries of in Christ that he will break you before it breaks you. But John Owen said... Be crucifying or be killing sin or it be killing you. So you have nothing with which you need to be held back by if you're in Christ. No matter, I don't care what it is. It's no match for the one who is your supreme overcomer. Because he's overcome all things. He goes on to say, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. Faith in what? In our world today, there's a bit of a doublespeak going on, and we typically find it in the cults because they want to distract from the authority of Scripture where the object of faith is where that faith 
gets its power and authority from. And the object of the faith for the Christian is the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's alive. Don't ever forget that. When you wake up every morning, it's like Resurrection Sunday because the Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's, he lives right here. And when you pull your legs over the side of the bed and you may be thinking coffee, Jesus is thinking, get ready because we have some stuff to talk about today and you have an opportunity to talk to me. And this is unheard of under the old covenant of works we're under the covenant of faith we're under the we're under we are the benefactors if you will of all that jesus has given us and overcoming is part of what it is overcoming and so jesus isn't someone we talk about before he's someone we talk about now today and boy you really want to set people on edge as i've said when you start sharing christ with them and they're listening you say this is not somebody i'm telling you about that was i talked to him just right now He's here right now, and it's their eyes get about that big. Because you're, you want to stress the fact that Jesus is, and he's overcoming even now. And he will be overcoming 10,000 years from now. And he will be overcoming a million years from now. And as long as eternity is eternal, we will have overcoming because Jesus never dies. And that's your faith that overcomes the world. Own it. And praise God, it's not kept by you, but by Him. John Stott, a noted commentarian, some of which you would agree with and some of which you may not, but this is good. He said, Christian believers are God's children, born from above. Stop thinking like Adam all the time. If you've been born again, live like it. Okay, you got a new federal head. You got a new father. The old one failed. The second one, he succeeded. And you're born from above. God's children are loved by all who love God. Those who love God also keep his commands. It's going to be evidenced in your life that there's something different about you. You say, how can I get people to see Jesus in me? Well, just live like he does. They keep his commands because they overcome the world and they overcome the world because they are Christian believers born from above. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, Jesus says to Nicodemus. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, as he says to Nicodemus. The wind blows where it will and you cannot discern its direction and so it is those who are born from above. I, I fear that one of the worst things that's ever happened to Christianity in the Western nations is a decreased view of God and an increased view of the sensations of God. Think about the difference. God lives in you Everywhere you go, he goes. Why do you think you feel convicted when, I'll just take something simple, even if you eat too much. There are people who are drunk and doing drugs and embezzling funds, but you feel bad because you eat too much? Why is that? Why? Because even something as you think is inconsequential as overeating, your body 
It's not your own anymore. Your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And if you shoved it full of five pounds of brisket, while it may be an acceptable sin, it is not acceptable to your Lord and Maker because you're no longer your own. You've been born from above. And that statement is this. Who is he? It's a question. And I thought at first, why did John have to ask a question? Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Who is he? Who is he? Us. We overcome the world. Because Jesus is the Son of God. Those of us who have been born from above. You cannot church your way into heaven. And it's 2022. And technology is weird. And invasive. And all-consuming. And if evolution was correct, by now I'm sure that everyone's eyeballs that are below 10 years old would be converging into one. Because you don't need two to look at a screen. But it's not happening. But what we see are false gods of a great magnitude vying for the attention that the one true God only has. And it is our job as ambassadors for Jesus Christ, as ambassadors for the kingdom of God, to take up our spot on the wall and to do our part in declaring the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And we all do that in different ways. But I can tell you this. For as long as God has His church in the world, there is hope for those who don't know Him. Because we proclaim the praises of Him who bought us. Which is reason why in passing, that the devil seeks so, obvi- so, so often every day to cause us to be discouraged so that we don't shine with that distinction. And I think that's probably it as I'm doing my research and studies is, is the American church, the Western church, has lost, among other things, its distinction as a separate people, a people of God, a people with power. Not sensational power that is limited just to your emotions. Oh, I got goosebumps. God must be here. Don't settle for second best. I'm talking about the power that means when you pray for someone, they feel as though God Himself was there. Because He was. He is inside you. Has Jesus come near your lost friend today? Well, I don't know. Did you go pray with Him? Did you call Him up? You say, well, we didn't really talk about anything. Yes, but Jesus is in you. And He can use everything. So as long as we're here, God has a work to do. And the devil would love nothing more than to steal your joy so that you forget that and get sidetracked. Look, it's really a war of words, isn't it? 
The media is screaming at you to look at how bad things are. And I, I fall victim to that too. You know why? Because I got two ears and two eyes also. And I have an idea about how things ought to be. But I need to surrender my attention solely to God's point of view. As we progress through this today, we get into this issue then of the three witnesses. I love this. This is outstanding. In verse, uh, verses 6 through 8, it says, um, uh, well, first, well, I'll read verses 6 through 8, then we'll turn to Luke. But it says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. Do you know how John went back and emphasized that again? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. And then he says, not only by water, but by water and blood. Now, why is he wanting us to see? This is how it is when you read your Bible. You have to think on every word and every repeated clause. And then he says, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are, agree as one. I'm going to give you a short uh, explanation of verses 7-8 for some of you in your Bible translations in a minute. But first, turn to Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. So as we're reading our Bibles, even if you're sitting at home and your coffee's by you there, or for some of the other folks that just have hot water, it's there, and, and you're reading, and, and you're studying the Scripture, and you read a verse like, let's see, he who came by water and blood, not only by water, but by water and blood. What is he talking about here? We think, well, he's talking about just being born in the first place, because we all know that when a child is birthed, there's water, and of course, there's blood. And, but no. No, that's really not it. So let's look here at the inauguration of Jesus' official ministry as it's found here in Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. It says, when all the people were baptized, so he, John, Jesus meets John at the Jordan, okay? And it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, now this is just incredible, these are these three witnesses, if you will, if you can grab it. While he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice, this would be God the Father, came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. These three witnesses that John is talking about here, especially in verses 7 and, uh, and 8 is referring to, obviously, the Trinity, the triunity of God. But before that, the water, he came by water. This is talking about his baptism. He's, his ministry is being inaugurated here. He is fulfilling all righteousness. This is the first part of that because immediately the Holy Spirit comes into him. We, we remember we were talking about the humanity of Jesus. Okay, he fulfilled in himself everything and modeled for himself everything that we're supposed to model here by living on this earth. The blood part came at 
Calvary, the blood was spilled. He, he, Jesus, in the, when he when in the Last Supper, in that upper room, what did he say? This is the blood, my blood of the new covenant. So this who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. And when we see back in this in this pericope in verse 21 and 22, we have this scene fleshed out that John is talking about. And it's just one of the areas. Bishop J.C. Ryle said this, We may regard Jesus' baptism as a public announcement that the work of Christ was the result of the eternal counsels of all which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. It was the whole trinity again, which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, now let us save man. It's fundamentally incredible. How can you take your Bible in your lap and come away bored? So I'm going to give you a little um, insight here. Present in the baptism of Jesus, as we just said, are the three witnesses. John talks about them. There they were displayed. It, it is all happening. This is no ordinary set of events. And this is, this is our faith that has overcome the world. This is what we inherit as people of God. This is a picture of what is known as the, I'm going to throw a Latin term at you, so Travis, are you ready? The pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption. Now, I don't throw these big fat terms at you so that you can sound smart to your friends. I have a reason for them. And the reason is this. As I know you all study, and if, if you happen to be waiting through a commentary, you're reading an article as you're doing some research, and you run across this term, pactum salutis, now you can at least connect the dot that you've seen it before, and that you know that it means the covenant of redemption. It's a big deal, and it actually started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when uh, God told the woman, that the seed would crush his head. That's when it started. Okay. And, and it goes forward. And it embraces the Abrahamic covenant too. I don't want to get into that. But I just want to say that it is an incredible thing. This covenant of redemption. In fact. In simple terms. And I pulled this off of the Gospel Coalition website. In simple terms. The covenant of redemption. Or the pactum salutis refers to the eternal agreement between the Father and the Son to save a people chosen in Christ before the ages began. In slightly more detail, Louis Burkhoff described the covenant redemption as the agreement between the Father giving the Son as head and redeemer of the elect and the Son voluntarily taking the place of those from whom the Father had given him. In other words, this was before the foundation of the world. Now, it doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, but we just saw the Holy Spirit in the baptism. And then John is talking about the Spirit there. And so this isn't plan B, you guys. How can I be any more inflective? I mean, you know, I get in trouble for being too animated sometimes. But I just want to say to you that if the doctrinal position that you hold holds salvation as a plan B reaction of God, you need to get a new doctrine. That is not a God you can trust that's sovereign. That's a God that said, oopsie, I got to make another deal. 
This is before the foundation fundamentally of the world. And this is the victory that has overcome our faith. This, this is why we have victory. It was determined. Jesus would do it. There is no conditions of a lesser covenant of works whereby we have to do this. And as long as we do it right, then God will do his part. And then if we mess up, he's going to squash us. This is of grace. And he keeps it because he ratified it with his own blood. It changes everything. It's amazing to me uh, that, and I'm learning this as I go. I mean, I'm going to be 49 in May, and, and, and it's still not 50 yet for some of you. But, you know, I'm, I'm, God is filling in holes in my theology that I never even knew existed. And he's connecting all, he's connecting more dots than ever been connected. And there's a picture emerging. Him. <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, more on this. Now, in traditional Reformed theology, the pactum has been a critically important doctrine helping to make sense of and hold together election in Christ, God's activity in history, and the intra- trinitarian love of god it has also been a pastoral doctrine meant to give the believer confidence that because of our covenant relationship with god because our covenant relationship with god has its origin in the father's pre-temporal covenant relationship with the son we do not have to merit our salvation but can rest secure in christ our surety do you get what that is saying so when someone says in the Christian life, it's all about Jesus, it's not about me, amen and amen. It's all about Jesus and it's not about me. It's because of me that I need him. But it's all about Jesus that he's there for me to have in the first place. I didn't merit his attentions. I didn't do anything so spectacular. He said, oh, that's a good and pick that one. No, it was just of, of his own will. And in Christ, and here's, here's about, the, about the best way I know to, to get this in your head. The Father planned it. The Son accomplished it. The Spirit applies it. Wherein that is you. Well, I'll tell you. We receive it. We receive it. If you're in Christ and you've met Him in a living way, all of this is, is for you. What a gift. Okay, so now for some nerdy stuff. <clears throat> if you have a King James or a new King James. I, I read the new King James. Any King Jamers in here? Okay, a few. More than I thought. Hi, Trina. <laughs> I didn't expect that. Usually it's from the old timers, but sometimes. Anyway, so it's fine. But we have an issue, as Rush Limbaugh would say sometimes. I remember he'd say issue. Uh, it's not a bad issue. But notice up here in 1 John 5, 6, 8 on the screen. This is how it reads from the NLT, the ESV, the NASB, and any of the modern uh, translations other than the King James and the New King James. And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by His baptism in water and by shedding His blood on the cross. 
not by water only, but by water and blood, and the Spirit, who is truth, confirms it with this testimony, or with his testimony. So we have these three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, all three agree, right? It's that last part. So we have these three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, all these three agree. Over here in my Bible, and it says in verse 7, the Word and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree as one. Well, the problem is, back in North Africa, and back in the old, old days, there was this thing called the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate that Jerome come up with for the early church to use as its official Bible per se, right? And again, it was in Latin, and, and that's what the church used. Well, then you cross over into, uh, into the, the, the European area, the West, if you will, and suddenly the church needed its own Greek. They wanted their own Greek Bible. They were just dis- trying to gather these these minuscules and manuscripts to gather them up to compile a greek text and so erasmus comes on the scene anyone heard of erasmus probably not but nonetheless he comes on the scene and and he's he works feverishly trying to put together this 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 greek bible for the church to use as a standard work um you would know it by the textus receptus or the received text it's in your King James introductions. It's also in your New King James introductions too. That's the that's the that's the the Greek text that was used Erasmus the one he created to make the King James version and the New King James version. Well, the New King James comes off the King James, but okay, I don't want to confuse you, but Erasmus is the one that compiled that. Here's the rub. If you have an ESV, like some of you younger folks, uh, and it's always considerably younger folks, or NASB, you don't have what I had in mind. There's a few things here that are, and in fact, in my Bible, and you read in the brackets, it says, omit the words from in heaven, verse 7, through on earth, verse 8. And it says, only four or five very late manuscripts contain these words in Greek. And here's what happened. There was a race on in those days to come up with a Greek New Testament. There was one going on in Spain at the same time that Erasmus was trying to compile his. He, only, he, he got this whole thing done in about eight or nine months. Okay? Because he was trying to beat to press the guys in, in Spain. Well, he went through and he did a really good job. He really did. But he had some critics. You know, there's always one in the bunch. And they wrote him a nasty letter and said, you, wrote, you, you didn't put in. Now, so the verses I just read, the Word and the Holy Spirit and these three are one. And then it says, and there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three are one. As we see the difference in the NLT up here, it just says the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and all three agree. This guy said, you didn't put that in there. Why didn't you put that in there? And, and Erasmus said, if you can show me one Greek text that has that in there, I will put it in there. So they didn't for the longest time, and there came up a second revision, and this guy produced a text. Well, Erasmus was upset because he knew right off the bat that it was a, it was a Greek text, all right, that was reverse translated from the Vulgate, Jerome's Bible. And really where all this is, is 
is is. The words that you might say are extra in the King James and New King James that doesn't change anything was actually a marginal note by a scribe left there for his own sake. And then it slipped in just like that. It was a political thing that happened. Now, we all know about that, right? Okay, so... When, when Erasmus came up, I think it was for his third edition. It, or second or third, I'm loose on facts there. But on the second edition, I think, this had come out, and so Erasmus reluctantly put it in there. Like, okay. Now, oh yeah, that's right. And then on the third edition, he had pulled it back out again. But it was the second edition that stuck. Then, much later, King James organized his group of scholars and that's why it's there so i just want to tell you if you're reading through your bible if you have a king james or a new king james and you see that you're like what is that that's kind of how it played out for those of you who esv nasb nlt and others you won't have that problem okay they just so erasmus didn't even want it there but truth of the matter is it it doesn't change anything it doesn't do any harm it's just a point of clarification when when john writes this passage of scripture though john was no doubt thinking of the heresy of serenthus at this time when john was writing this letter there was a heretic serenthus who this is what he maintained taught that the divine christ descended on the man jesus at his baptism and then left him before his crucifixion thus he denied that one person jesus christ came by both water and blood he could not let himself have that and really what we have here today is the fact that nothing much has changed except vernacular false religions and false teachers today still try to mess with the character and humanity and deity of jesus in some way he is the perfect god man and we have to come to grips with that. But He is the one whom, if you're in Him, you know. It's incredible stuff. I just, I, I don't know, I just like that. So, when caught between God and man, in the form of argument, if you will, always go with God. If you're looking for testimony for who Jesus Christ is and what faith is, go with God. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. And it's not just in the, in, 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 in the Mormon church. The scriptures have been translated so many times, you don't even know what's in it anymore. Oh, yes, we do. Okay, and, and that's a whole other discussion we don't have time for. But emphatically, for you to say that is like trying to convince me that round is square. Because it literally is not a fact. The Bible has been translated one time, people. You've got to remember this. From the originals to English. To, from the original to Japanese. From the original to German. Or whatever. But it's, it's one time translation. See, here's where you would run into problems. 
is if you took the Bible, the, 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 Greek, the Greek manuscripts, and you made a translation into English, and then you went from English into Japanese, well, you got serious trouble. And then you went from Japanese, let's say, to Spanish. And then you went from Spanish to Russian. Yeah, you're going to have issues, but that does not happen ever. You don't do that. So you can trust your Bibles. From King James on, you can trust your Bibles. Some of the newer ones are getting out there, though, so be careful. If you have a question, call me or JT or one of the elders, and we'll let you know. But the beautiful thing is when caught between God and man, always go with God. Since, since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. And God has testified about His Son. All who believe in the Son of God know in their hearts that the testimony is true. Those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe what God has testified about His Son. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. That's where we have life. These are words of assurance. God Himself testifies to the truthfulness of the gospel. As we read here, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which He has testified of His Son. Verse 10. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He, does not be, he who does not believe God has made him a liar. So if you say, for example, as someone who does not believe God, the, the Bible is false and God doesn't exist, you are lying against God himself. And by the way, let me just set this out here. Does Acts 17, I think, it says God commands all men everywhere to repent it doesn't say God invites or God requests or God suggests God commands let God be true and every man a liar so he goes on to say because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son and this word testimony is, goes back to the idea of the covenant of redemption which God himself is keeping. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Verse 12, he who has a son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. You can go to church till you turn into a facility. You can get baptized till you turn into a raisin. You can eat communion bread till you blow up like an elephant. It does not matter what you do. You can eat Bibles. You can espouse Scripture. But if you don't know Christ, you're lost and you're on your way to hell. That is how it is because God commands you to repent. And that's the gospel of grace that you're even brought to the point where you know you need to. Isn't it? These things I have written in verse 13 for those of you who may struggle with assurance of salvation. And, and you know what? So many Christians do. And I believe it's a, it's a new Christian thing. The older you grow in the Scripture, the more assurance you get. Tying the fact that this issue of assurance is about Knowing the word of God revealed by God through the Holy Spirit to your heart. And here's what he says. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 
Doubting of salvation in the Christian life is not a normal thing. It's not part of the normal Christian life in the sense that it's just kind of what happens, it's how it is. John here is declaring the fact that I'm writing so that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't need to have doubts. You need to know that your salvation is not held by you or your conditions to the covenant. It's Christ holding the conditions to the covenant and that his blood was sealed. He's the one that sealed it. And that notice, and, and here's another place, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You're You're going to continue. You will persevere. And your Christian life may look like this, really. And then you, and then, but the point is, the thing, if you back up to about, you know, put five mile range on it and put a good scope on it, and you'll find that even these dips are gaining you altitude because Christ is under you. What does the Bible say? And underneath are the everlasting arms. That's right. So you have victory. And even your pits, even in your lowest times, your sanctification is definitive. Your progression is sure because Christ is filling the conditions of the new covenant of grace and redemption. We are the beneficiaries. Can he fail? No, he cannot. I'm going to finish with a statement by Al Mohler. He says this, The doctrine of assurance looks into eternity past to the eternal purposes of God, looks into history to the accomplished work of Christ, and looks to the future toward the perfect fulfillment of God's purpose to redeem a people through His Son. The three witnesses to the overcomer. I'm going to ask JT to come. You've heard these words today. If you're here and you don't know Christ, God commands you to repent. You simply cry out for mercy. You fall on Christ. You say, God, here I am. Take it. I'm done. I don't want to do it anymore. It's not life my way. I want to walk your way. I repent. And you, you spend time there. And Christian, if, if you've been beaten around and rolled around sometime like the old cow would used to do when I try to take the baby away, just remember, God reigns over the cow. And His grace is sufficient for you because He keeps the covenant. He will never fail and you will rise up. He guarantees it for His name's sake. So for the purposes of this last part of the service, as JT sings, the altar is open if you need to come and pray and cry out to God for whatever it may be or just where you are to reflect on this for a few moments. But as JT plays and sings a little, take this time before you leave today to say, God, seal this to my heart.